Good morning. My name is Dave, and just glad to see all of you here in person. And if you're joining us online, just thank you for joining us as well, wherever you're at. It's great to be together and to be in God's Word together. Well, we are coming off of New Year's, and uh, you know, some people like to make New Year's resolutions. Anybody out here make any New Year's resolutions? No. Maybe I should make some New Year's suggestions for you. No, just kidding, just kidding. But a lot of people make resolutions, right? They make these resolutions because they want to change themselves in hopes of bettering themselves, right? Perhaps committing to things like getting more exercise or watching less television, reading some more books, right? My experience, though, nothing brings about change as much as relationships can. I remember becoming a new dad when I was pulling out of the hospital parking lot for the very first time with my newborn baby in the back seat. My driving was transformed, I tell you, right? Going from a heavy foot to all of a sudden now playing it really safe. And parenting continues to challenge and change me in ways that I never thought possible, maybe ways I don't like so much, even though I know it's good for me, I have to say that often it's painful. But that's nothing compared to the challenges and the changes that Jesus brings when we enter into a relationship with him. Following Jesus, it is so worthwhile, but it can also be difficult and often painful. And unlike resolutions that may not stick or that we might give up on, the change that comes with being in a relationship with Jesus is like those changes that we're confronted with being a parent. They're unavoidable. And that's, and you know, but, and that's what we see in Philippians chapter 1 verses 1 to 11 that we're going to be digging into this morning. That if you're going to follow Jesus, you better be prepared for change because Jesus he will transform you. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them. The text will be on the screen, but we're going to be in the scripture a lot this morning. And so as you're opening your Bible to, first, uh, to Philippians 1, uh, let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us. I thank you so much for the church in Philippi uh, and for the experiences they went through that the Apostle Paul wrote to them of so that we can learn from their experiences and that we can learn from your word as it shapes and transforms us today. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you, God. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the word says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. 
God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. So this is going to be the first sermon that we're doing in a series to the letter to the Philippians. So before we dig in, we need to have a little bit of context about why this letter was written, who it was written to, and and what they were experiencing. So Emperor Caesar Augustus, he established the Macedonian city of Philippi as a Roman colony. And he did this uh, in order to, sorry, He also bestowed Roman citizenship on all of its people that were in Philippi, which was quite an honor. And this was abnormal if it was happening outside of Rome. He then proceeded to populate the town and its surrounding area with discharged veterans from the war. And he did this so that he could assure allegiance to him and to the empire and to expand the Roman way of life. Now, the church in Philippi, they were established around 49 AD. And there's an account of this written in Acts 16 that you can read about later. But it was formed by God-fearing women who met by the river for prayer because there was no Jewish synagogue in that town. And there they met the apostle Paul, who led them and others to faith in Jesus, and thus he established the church. After leaving Philippi, Paul ends up in prison. Most likely, it's in Rome. And unlike our prisons today, these first century prisons, they didn't provide for the prisoners. They didn't provide food for them. And it was unlikely that Paul was able to maintain his tent-making business in order to provide for himself. And so he was completely dependent upon others for support. And this is where the church in Philippi steps in. They had sent him money, and so one of the reasons that Paul writes this letter is to say a heartfelt thank you to them. But Paul loves this church, and his, extent for this, his, his love extends beyond just their financial support. As we'll see, they have become his partners in the gospel. And it is because of the gospel that Paul has ended up in prison. Because of the gospel, it is subversive to earthly powers, including the Roman Empire. And this leads to the first challenge that these Philippian believers faced. You see, citizens were expected to give their allegiance to Caesar in exchange for that Roman citizenship with all of its rights and privileges that was bestowed upon them. Allegiance included recognizing the emperor by his primary titles, which is Kyrios and Sotor, Lord and Savior. But you see, Christians in Philippi, they couldn't do that. Their allegiance had already been transformed and given to another. Despite living in Philippi, they were citizens of another kingdom, right? They were ruled by the sole Lord and Savior, King Jesus. And because of this, these Christians, they faced persecution. However, the Philippians not only faced the pressures from outside the church, but they also faced pressure from within the church as well. Uh, 
Paul writes about Judaizers who have pressured other churches that he have planted. These Judaizers, they pressured the Christians to observe the Torah rules, such as circumcision or certain food laws. And unsurprisingly, there were also other disagreements and quarrels within the church that threatened them as well. So Paul and Timothy, they write this letter to encourage the Christians at Philippi, to remind them of what they have in Christ, but also how Jesus has transformed them. The letter starts out simply, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. You know, it's really easy for us when we're reading the scripture just to skim over a verse like this as just an introduction and let's just, let's get into the rest of it, the important parts. But it would be to our detriment if we did that. Because it's here at the very beginning of this letter that Paul demonstrates how significant a transformation Jesus makes in people right down to our very core, our very identity. First, he identifies himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. But the word he uses here as servants, it's literally slaves. Certainly, this would have grabbed the attention of the Philippian church as it was made up of both free Roman citizens, but slaves as well. Now, some forms of slavery in that culture, not all, but some, they were more akin to being household servants. However, being a slave still meant that you were not free to do as you pleased, that you belonged to do the will of another. And that's exactly how Paul and Timothy see themselves. They belong to do the will of another, to do the will of Jesus. Now, this kind of language not only borders on politically incorrect today, but it pushes against our very nature, our identity, and the spirit of the culture in which you and I live. To be bound to somebody else's rule in our lives, it seems ludicrous to us, even to some professing Christians. But Paul, he's got no problem being a slave to Christ, being subservient to King Jesus. You see, unlike Caesar, who knows nothing but ruling over people, Jesus came and served humanity. So if serving was good enough for the king, well then, Paul writes, it should be good enough for us as well. Later in Philippians 2, Paul writes, in your relationships one another with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so, if nothing else, Paul identifying himself and Timothy as slaves of Christ in verse 1 should indicate to us that when we come to trust and follow Jesus, we are transformed from independence and self-rule into a life of service to the Lord, one that is marked by submission and humility. Paul then goes on to address the Philippians to talk about their identity as God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. God's holy people. Talk about a contrast of images, right? Slaves on one hand, saints on the other. 
But there is no contradiction here between these two statuses. You see, the key to their identity as one and the other, it's the same. It's a a direct result of their relationship with Jesus. Everybody else who lives in Philippi, they are servants of Caesar, citizens of his empire with all its rights and privileges, but that's all changed for these believers. They may still live in Philippi, but they serve another king and they are citizens of a different kingdom. Through faith in Christ, the Philippian believers have now been called out and set apart. Called out and set apart. That is what being God's holy people has always meant throughout history. Set apart. Being holy people, it has very little to do with what we have done and everything with what God has done for us. In 1 Peter 2, Peter writes, But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As God's holy people, or as saints, it doesn't mean that we're sinless. Rather, as citizens of his kingdom, it means that we're entitled to all the rights and privileges of being his people. It means we're no longer bound or enslaved to sin because we belong to the kingdom of light, not the kingdom of darkness. It means that we receive mercy for the wrong we've done instead of the condemnation that we deserve, and we don't have to wander this life seeking out a purpose or fulfillment Because in and through Christ, we have the ultimate purpose and the only fulfillment that will ever satisfy. See, being God's holy people means we're also transformed from individuals or cliques into citizens or a nation, reminding us that we not only belong to him, but we also belong to each other. We are obligated to care and serve one another out of love for God and mutual affection for each other. So the first thing that Jesus transforms is our identity. We become slaves and saints, from individuals to a nation, because we are in Christ. The next thing that's transformed is our mission or our purpose. Paul writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So we are partners in the gospel. The word partnership, it's the Greek word koinonia, which is the English word we use for fellowship. Now, fellowship is not a word that we use all that often in our day and age. Some of it think of it as like friendship or camaraderie. But that is not what the Bible means when it uses this word koinonia. Uh, Certainly Paul and the Philippians, they care for each other. But the idea of koinonia, it's primarily about participating in something together with others. An example of this would be from Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. The first book is called The Fellowship of the Ring. And it's primarily the story about nine characters who all set out on this quest to destroy this one evil ring. 
They aren't brought together because they're great friends or to even have a good time. If you read the book, you see that they certainly don't have a good time. But rather, these individuals from different places and from different races are brought together into the fellowship for and by a common purpose. Brought into the fellowship for and by a common purpose. And that is just what happened to the Philippians. When they put their hope in Jesus, they joined Paul as partners in the gospel. No wonder Paul has great joy whenever he thinks about them because the team's been expanded, right? There's more people to shoulder the load, to be on mission together. They now have this same purpose, a collective goal, that others would hear the good news of Jesus, come to faith, and be transformed as well. That's what fellowship is. In Christ is. It's not a social club, but it's a diverse group of people on mission together, sharing a common purpose. It doesn't mean that we're all gifted the same or that we're called to do the same work. We're not assimilated in a way that takes away our unique makeup that reflects the image of God that he's created in each one of us. Rather, this transformation into a fellowship, it utilizes each person's unique gifts, personalities, and histories in order to advance the kingdom of God in a way that is far more effective than if each of us were all the, if we were all the same. See, we need diversity. We need diversity. It's why the church is made up of women and men, young and old, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. In Christ, we are one. We're one body, we're one people with one purpose, but our differences also reflect the image of the one God. And we each play a different role, right? Not everyone is meant to evangelize like the Apostle Paul did, or wants to preach like I do, or lead worship like Haley, right? God has given us each something to use in our partnership in the gospel, and it's different. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, there's different kinds of spiritual gifts, but it's the same spirit that is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. So not only does Jesus transform our identity, into slaves and saints, but he also transforms our purpose. We become gospel partners. I find this to be super reassuring, that Jesus has taken care of these two aspects, our identity and our purpose, because I find in my life, the big questions that I have seemed to always have wrestled with are these two areas, my identity and my purpose. And I've questioned, you know, you know, figuring it all out. Am I getting it all right? But I don't have to worry about all of that anymore because in Jesus, I have a purpose. My identity, it's found in Christ. Maybe you're thinking, perhaps Jesus picked the wrong person to partner with, that you feel like you don't have much to offer or you, you don't work well with others, especially those who might be so different from you. But this is why in verse six, I find it to be Such a reassuring verse. And it's not only the highlight of this passage, but I believe it to be like the motto of this entire letter to the Philippians. Being confident of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it out unto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This, friends, this verse here, is this such good news? Especially for those of us who know that we are far from a finished product. God knows that we're not complete. He has started this good work in us, and we can trust him to finish the job. And this process of transformation called sanctification, it's slow, and it can be painful because it often comes through adversity and difficulty. Two things I don't like. But we have a role to play in this good work. We partner with God in this process. The Bible calls us to work, to strive, to make every effort to conform ourselves into Christ-likeness. But ultimately, this is God who transforms us. And Paul says, we're going to continue to experience the struggles and growing pains that come with this transformation until the day of Christ. He's still going to be forming us until the return of the King. But one of the ways that we partner with Jesus in our transformation is through loving others, particularly those in the fellowship, in the church. It's a transformation of our relationships. Listen to how Paul emphasizes love in this last chapter, this last half of this passage. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Just full of these words that are emphasizing love and care and compassion for each other. You know, during Advent, I spoke about love and how love is far more than a feeling. That love is this, is this unconditional commitment to act in love, whatever the circumstances are. And love is central to our transformation. In 1 John 4, John writes, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So it is imperative that we love one another. And if we're ever wondering, well, what are my actions looking like? How are they coming across, you know, are they coming across loving? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he describes the telltale characteristics of what love looks like, saying it's patience and it is kind. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And this love never fails. Love never fails. 
But I think sometimes we fail to love, don't we? If I were to evaluate all of my actions based on 1 Corinthians 13 criteria, I know I would fail. It's hard, right? We're in process. This transformation is taking place, but it's not finished yet. And this is why Paul says that his prayer for them is that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. It's not complete. That's why he's praying for them. And knowledge and depth of insight will help them to love better. So what does that mean? What does he mean by that? Is it knowledge of Christ? Will that help us to love better? Yeah, I think so. How about depth of insight to the scriptures? Certainly, I think that will help us to love better as well. But I think Paul also wants our love to abound in knowledge and insight of one another. I think, you know, it's only when we get to know another person, when we listen to their stories, that we can begin to see things from their point of view. That we can also begin to see them as the child of God and begin to have the love for them that the Father has for them. I remember in a previous church, one Sunday morning, right, like moments before going up to preach, an older woman in our congregation, she just started yelling at me. She just took me to task about an announcement not getting into the bulletin that she wanted there. I was I was rattled that morning. I was so taken aback. I was, you know, besides, the bulletin's not even my responsibility, right? And I was so angry with her. And I remember a, a wise saint in the church saying to me, like, you should get to know her, right? You should get to know what's behind that. I didn't feel like I had to, but, you know, I, I listened and I got to know her better. I, I learned that she had a traumatic past that included some, some deep disappointments and pain from previous pastors. Now, this didn't excuse her behavior to me. It wasn't loving, but it gave me context for her and it helped me to have compassion. Compassion for her. It helped me to love her. I'm so thankful that that older Christian guided me to, like, get to know this other person better. You see, if there's anything that we need more of today, friends, it is compassion and kindness. We need to take time to know each other so that we can love one another better. And in the meantime, because it's difficult in these days to really get to know each other better, in the meantime, we need to give each other grace and benefit of the doubt. We don't love because it's easy. John says we love because God first loved us. Paul says what this knowledge and insight produces is being able to discern what's best so that we can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ and filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. Again, all of this language, it's all relationship language. It's all about Jesus wanting to transform our relationships with one another. First, being able to discern what's best. Notice that he does not say being able to discern what's right. 
we're often convinced that there is a single right way in everything, and that's our way, and that anybody disagrees with us. Well, they're not simply misguided, they're wrong. Take the current moment that we're living in, for example, with COVID, with this resurgence of this new Omicron variants, and now people's different comfort levels for meeting in person, and we assume that well, if everybody would just think like us, because my way is the right way, and anybody who thinks differently isn't just misguided, they're wrong. But we need to have humility in these discussions. Love calls us to have compassion for one another, patience, being kind with each other. See, we're all trying to discern what's best. Not right or wrong, but Paul says, what's best? And many things in life, they're not, they're not simply clear. They're more complicated than just right and wrong. This is about loving others in such a way that we love them, that we're actually blameless and pure. It's all about our relationships that Jesus wants to transform so that we can be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. So what is that fruit of righteousness? Well, righteousness in the Bible it almost always has to do with being in a right relationship. And so the fruit of that righteousness is that we are in a good relationship with one another. It doesn't mean we're always agreeing with each other, but that we're, we're loving each other, right? Righteousness is about right relationships. It is not about superior or sanctimonious attitudes. Being righteous in the eyes of God is far more about showing compassion than it is about being right. Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others, having the same mindset as Christ. That's hard. That's why he needs to do a transforming work in my life. Jesus transforms our identity and our purpose. He transforms how we relate to others. And finally, Jesus transforms us for the future. He transforms our futures. Twice this passage has mentioned the day of Christ. The day of Christ is the day that he returns, the day that Jesus will come back to judge the earth, to punish the wicked, to put all wrongs to right, and to bring justice forever. Amen, someone says. Amen. And yet this week, someone and I, we were talking about this, weren't we, right? Yeah. I'm not going to say who. Um, but yeah, this is the ultimate transformation that he's preparing us for. And, you know, for quite some time in my life, I lived in fear of the day for Christ's return. I know when I was younger, it was because uh, I didn't have this great expectation of what eternity would be like. And I thought there would be some more fun things on earth that I wanted to experience before he came back. Things like getting my driver's license or getting married, right? Uh, as I got older, it was more things like fears that I had that I would be found unworthy. Fear that, that I hadn't done enough good things with my life or fear that I had sinned too much. But as my understanding of God's grace has grown, but also what awaits us in the new heaven and the new earth, my anticipation for his return has grown as well especially in this season with the pandemic. Uh, I have to say that 
like no other time. I long for Jesus to return to establish his kingdom rule and to bring his justice now more than ever. And so I can joyfully pray that prayer with Jesus, you know, like, may your kingdom come, right? As we sang that song, it is well with my soul. You know, we sing about that last day, the trumpets will sound, the Lord shall descend. I'm not worried that, you know, I won't get to experience cool things on earth because I know that what awaits me is far better than that. In the meantime, while we're waiting for that to happen, Christ is preparing us for that future. And like the Philippians, we are already citizens of that kingdom. Our allegiance, it has been transformed, given over to King Jesus. And until he returns, it is incumbent upon all of us, to all, uh, incumbent upon all of God's holy people, that we live the life of the future, the life of his coming kingdom now, no matter what circumstances that we face today. So how do we do that? How do we live as citizens of this coming kingdom in the present? I have two thoughts on that. First, I think we need to be willing and active participants in the transformation that Jesus wants to do in our lives. Willing and active participants. Change is hard. I think we naturally try to resist it, but our willingness to go along with the Holy Spirit in this process, I think it goes a long way, even though the spiritual and character formation is primarily his responsibility. I think we need to be eager participants. You know, we were praying this morning during prayer time about uh, the role and responsibility that parents have in discipling their children. And as we were praying about that, a thought came to my mind. It's just like, Lord, May our children see in us not just duty, but desire, right? Like this heart for Jesus. If somebody ever asks me, like if my kids ever ask me, why do you go to church? May it be, oh, I love Jesus and he has transformed my life. May that be the answer we give. And so we need to be eager participants in the transforming work that Jesus wants to do with us. So we spend time in scripture and prayer. We worship God in our work and in our play and in our rest. We obey the Spirit's prompting, trusting Him when He nudges us to take steps of faith. And these are the tried and true practices of the spiritually mature people all throughout the history of the church. And so the second thing I think we need to do, and this is a bit more difficult in this time, maybe it's even more difficult in regular times, but to take time to get to know others in order to love them. Spend time listening to someone else's story. Paul says that this is to the glory and praise of God. Jesus, he said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up and lead us in a response. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, I am so grateful that you love us. You love us enough to keep working on us. I thank you so much for the work that you've already done in each of our lives, that you have uh, changed our, 
our position in life completely, that we have been removed from the kingdom of darkness into your wonderful kingdom of light. And we just pray that you would just continue to shine your light on us. Would you expose the areas of darkness in our life, areas that we have been hesitant to give over to you, that you still want to do a transforming work. And Lord, may we, out of great trust, be vulnerable to you and that you would do this great work in us. Lord, I pray that you would also help us to love one another, that each one here that you've placed in the fellowship, we are partners together, but more than that, we are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and you love each one of your children, and help us to be like our senior brother, Jesus, who loved us so much. He served us. He sacrificed for us. He died for us. And, uh, and thank you that he, he reigns and he rules again. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.